Chapter eighteen of the Wanderer or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter eighteen. Comforted, at least, for Elinor, whose situation in being known seemed to lose its greatest danger. Ellis, with less oppression upon her spirits, returned to the dressing-room. Elinor was writing, and too intently occupied to heed the opening of the door. The motion of her hand was so rapid that her pen seemed rather to skim over than to touch her paper. Ellis gently approached her, but, finding that she did not raise her head, ventured not even to announce that her orders had been executed. At length, her paper being filled, she looked up and said, "'Well, is he there?' "'I have delivered to him, madam, your commands.' "'Then,' cried she, rising with an exulting air, "'the moment of my triumph is come. Yes, Harleigh, if meanly I have offended you my person, nobly at least I will consecrate to you my soul.' Hastily rolling up what she had been writing, and putting it into a desk, "'Ellis,' she added, Mark me well. Should any accident betide me, here will be found the last and unalterable codicil to my will. It is signed, but not witnessed. It is not, however, of a nature to be disputed. It is to desire only that Harleigh will take care that my bones shall be buried in the same charnel-house in which he orders the internment of his own. All that remains, finally, of either of us there, at least, may meet. Ellis turned cold with horror. Her first idea was to send for Mrs. Maple, yet that lady was so completely without influence, that any interference on her part might rather stimulate than impede what it was meant to oppose. It seemed, therefore, safest to trust wholly to Harleigh. The eyes of Elinor were wild and fierce, her complexion was livid, her countenance was become haggard, and, while she talked of triumph, and fancied it was what she felt, every feature exhibited the most tortured marks of impetuous sorrow, and ungoverned disappointment. She took from her bureau the chagrin case which she had so fondly caressed, and which Ellis concluded to contain some portrait or cherished keepsake of Harleigh, and hurried downstairs. Ellis fearfully followed her. No one happened to be in the way, and she was already in the garden, when, turning suddenly round, and perceiving Ellis, "'Oh, ho!' she cried. "'You are come unbidden. You are right. I shall want you.' She then precipitately entered the summer-house, in which Harleigh was awaiting her in the keenest anxiety. His disturbance was augmented upon observing her extreme paleness, though she tried to meet him with a smile. She shut and bolted the door, and seated herself before she spoke. Assuming then a mien of austerity, though her voice betrayed internal tremor, "'Harleigh!' she cried, "'be not alarmed. I have received your answer. Fear not that I shall ever expect, or would now, ever listen to another. Tis to vindicate, not to lower my character, that I am here. I have given you, I am aware, a great surprise by what you conceive to be my weakness.' Prepare yourself for a yet greater, from an opposite cause. I come to explain to you the principles by which I am actuated, clearly and roundly, without false modesty, insipid affectation, or artful ambiguity. 
you will then know from what plan of reasoning I adopt my measures, which as yet, believing to be urged only by my feelings, you attribute, perhaps, like that poor scared Ellis, to insanity. Ellis forced a smile, and, seating herself at some distance, tried to wear the appearance of losing her apprehensions, while Harleigh, drawing a chair near Elinor, assured her that his whole mind was engaged in attention to what she might disclose. Her voice now became more steady, and she proceeded. "'You think me, I know, tarnished by those very revolutionary ideas through which, in my own estimation, I am ennobled. I owe to them that I dare hold myself intellectually, as well as personally, an equal member of the community, not a poor, degraded, however necessary, appendant to it. I owe to them my enfranchisement from the mental slavery of subscribing to unexamined opinions, and being governed by prejudices that I despise. I owe to them the precious privilege, so shamefully new to mankind, of daring to think for myself. But for them, should I not, at this moment, be pining away my lingering existence in silent consumption? They have rescued me from that slow poison. In what manner? said Harleigh. Can I presume? She interrupted him. Imagine not that I am come to reproach you, or still less to soften you. She stopped, confused, rose, and again seated herself before she could go on. No littleness of that description belongs not to such energies as those which you have awakened. I come but, I repeat, to defend myself from any injurious suspicion of having lightly given way to a mere impulse of passion. I come to bring you conviction that reason has guided my conduct, and I come to solicit a boon from you, a last boon, before we separate for ever. I am charmed if you have anything to ask of me, said Harleigh, that my zeal, my friendship, my attachment, may find some vent, but why speak of so solemn a separation? You will grant, then, what I mean to request? What can it be I could refuse? Enough, you will soon know. Now to my justification. Hear me, Harleigh. She arose, and, clasping her hands, with strong yet tender emotion, exclaimed, That I should love you! She stopped. Shame crimsoned her skin. She covered her face with both her hands, and sunk again upon her chair. Harleigh was strongly and painfully affected. "'Oh, Elinor!' he cried, and was going to take her hand, but the fear of misinterpretation made him draw back, and Elinor, almost instantly recovering, raised her head and said, "'How tenacious a tyrant is custom! How it clings to our practice! How it embarrasses our conduct! How it awes our very nature itself, and bewilders and confounds even our free will!' We are slaves to its laws and its follies, till we forget its usurpation. Who should have told me only five minutes ago, that, at an instant such as this, an instant of liberation from all shackles, of defiance to all forms, its antique prescriptions should still retain their power to confuse and torment me? Who should have told me that, at an instant such as this, I should blush to pronounce the attachment in which I ought to glory, and hardly know how to articulate, that I should love you, Harleigh, can surprise no one but yourself. Her cheeks were now in flames, and those of Harleigh were tinted with nearly as high a colour. 
Ellis fixed her eyes steadfastly upon the floor. Shocked, in spite of her sunk expectations, that words such as these could be heard by Harleigh in silence, she resumed again the haughty air with which she had begun the conference. "'I ought not to detain you so long, for a defence so unimportant. What, to you, can it matter that my valueless preference should be acknowledged from the spur of passion, or the dictates of reason? And yet to the receiver, as well as the offerer, a sacrifice brings honour or disgrace according to its motives. Listen, therefore, for both our sakes, to mine, though they may lead you to a subject which you have long since, in common with every man that breathes, wished exploded, the rights of woman, rights, however, which all your sex, with all its arbitrary assumption of superiority, can never disprove, for they are the rights of human nature, to which the two sexes equally and unalienably belong. But I must leave to abler casuists, and the slow, all-arranging ascendance of truth, to raise our oppressed half of the human species, to the equality and dignity for which equal nature, that gives us birth and death alike, designs us. I must spend my remaining moments in egotism, for all that I have time to attempt is my personal vindication. Harleigh, from the first instant that I saw you, heard you, knew you, she breathed hard, and spoke with difficulty, but forced herself on. From that first instant, Harleigh, I have lived but to cherish your idea. Her features now regained their highest expression of vivacity, and, rising and looking at him with a sort of wild rapture, "'Oh, Harleigh,' she continued, "'have I attained at last this exquisite moment? What does it not pay of excruciating suspense, of hateful laborious forbearance and unnatural self-denial? Harleigh, dearest Harleigh, you are master of my soul, you are sovereign of my esteem, my admiration, my every feeling of tenderness, and every idea of perfection.' except then the warm homage of a glowing heart that beats but for you and that beating in vain will beat no more the crimson hue now mounted to her forehead and reddened her neck her eyes became lustrous and she was preparing with an air of ecstasy to open the chagrin case which she had held folded to her bosom when harleigh seizing her hand dropped on one knee and hardly conscious of what he did or what he felt from the terrible impression made by a speech so full of love, despair, and menace, exclaimed, "'Eleanor, you crown me then with honours but to kill me with torture?' With a look of softness new to her features, new to her character, and emanating from sensations of delight new to her hopes, Eleanor sunk gently upon her chair, yet left him full possession of her hand and, for some instants, seemed silent from a luxury of inward enjoyment. "'Is it Harleigh?' she then cried. "'Albert Harleigh, I see at my feet. Ah, what is the period since I have known him, in which I would not joyfully have resigned all the rest of my life, for a sight, a moment such as this? Dear, dear, delicious poison! Thrill, thrill through my veins! Throb at my heart! New string every fibre of my frame!' Is it then granted me at last to see thee thus, and thus dare speak to thee, to give sound to my feelings, to allow utterance of my love, to dare suffer my own breath to emit the purest flame that ever warmed a virgin heart? Ah, Harleigh, proud Harleigh! Harleigh, embarrassed, had risen, 
though without quitting her hand, and reseated himself. "'Proud, proud Harleigh!' she continued, angrily snatching away her hand. "'You think even this little moment of sympathy too long for love and Elinor? You fear, perhaps, that she should expect its duration or repetition? Know me, Harleigh, better. I come not to sue you for compassion. I would not accept it. Elinor may fail to excite your regard, but she will never make you blush that you have excited hers. My choice itself speaks the purity of my passion, for are not Harleigh and Honour one?" She paused to recover some composure, and then went on. You have attached neither a weak, giddy, unguarded fool, nor an idly wilful or romantic voluptuary. My defence is graded upon your character as much as upon my own. I could divide it into many branches, but I will content myself with only striking at its root, namely the right of woman, if endowed with senses, to make use of them. Oh, Harleigh, why have I seen you wiser and better than all your race, sounder in your judgment, more elegant in your manners, more spirited in your conduct, lively though benevolent, gentle though brilliant? Oh, Albert! Albert, if I must listen to you with the same dull ears, look at you with the same unmarking eyes, and think of you with the same unmeaning coldness, with which I hear, see, and consider the time-wearing, spirit-consuming, soul-wasting tribe that daily press upon my sight, and offend my understanding. Can you ask, can you expect, can you wish to doom half your species to so degraded a state? to look down upon the wife who is meant for the companion of your existence and upon the mother of whose nature you must so largely partake as upon mere sleepy slavish uninteresting automatons say speak answer harleigh can such be your lordly yet most unmanly desire and is it seriously that elinor would have me reply to such a question no harleigh your noble liberal nature answers it in every word, in every look. You accord, then, you conceive, at least, all that constitutes my defence, in allowing me the use of my faculties, for how better can I employ them than in doing honour to excellence? Why, for so many centuries, has man, alone, been supposed to possess, not only force and power for action and defence, but even all the rights of taste, all the fine sensibilities which impel our happiest sympathies, in the choice of our life's partners. Why, not alone, is woman to be excluded from the exertions of courage, the field of glory, the immortal death of honour, not alone to be denied deliberating upon the safety of the state in which she is a member, and the utility of the laws by which she must be governed? Must even her heart be circumscribed by boundaries as narrow as her sphere of action in life? Must she be taught to subdue all its native emotions? To hide them as sin, and to deny them as shame? Must her affections be bestowed but as the recompense of flattery received, not of merit discriminated? Must everything that she does be prescribed by rule? Must everything that she says be limited to what has been said before? Must nothing that is spontaneous, generous, intuitive, spring from her soul to her lips? And do you, even you, Harleigh, despise unbidden love? No, Elinor, no, if I durst tell you what I think of it. He stopped, embarrassed. I understand you, Harleigh. You know not how to find expressions that may not wound me. Well, let me not pain you. Let us hasten to conclude. I have spoken all that I am now capable to utter in my defence. 
nothing more remains but the boon I have to beg. Harleigh, if there be a question you can resolve me, that may mitigate the horror of my destiny, without diminishing its glory, for glory and horror go hand in hand, would you refuse me when I solicit it as a boon? Would you refuse, Harleigh, to satisfy me, even though my demand should be perplexing? Could you, Harleigh, refuse me, and at such a moment as this? No, certainly not. Tell me, then, and fear not to be sincere. Is it to some other attachment? A sort of shivering fit stopped her for a moment, but she recovered from it by a pride that seemed to burn through every vein, as she added, Or is it to innate repugnance that I owe your dislike? Dislike? Repugnance? Harleigh repeated with quickness. Can Elinor be at once so generous and so unjust? Can she delineate her own feelings with so touching and so glowing a pencil, yet so ill describe, or so willfully fail in comprehending mine? Dare then to be ingenuous, and save me, Harleigh, if with truth you can, the depression, the shame of being rejected from impenetrable apathy. I ought, I know, to be above such narrow punctilio, and to allow the independence of your liberty. But I did not fall into the refining hands of philosophy, early enough to eradicate wholly from my mind, all dregs of the clinging first impressions of habit and education. Say then, Harleigh, if it be in your power, so to say, that it is not a free heart which thus coldly disdains me, that it is not a disengaged mind which refuses me its sympathy, that it is not to personal aversion, but to some previous regard, that I owe your insensibility. To me the event will be the same, but the failure will be less ignoble. How difficult, O oh Elinor, how next to impossible such a statement makes every species of answer! At a point, Harleigh, awful and finite to our intercourse like this, fall not into what I have hitherto, with so much reference, seen you, upon all occasions, superior to, subterfuge and evasion. Be yourself, Harleigh, what can you be more noble? And plainly, simply, let me into the cause, since you cannot conceal from me the effect. Speak, then, is it but in the sullen majesty of masculine superiority, lord of yourself, uncumbered by a wife? that you fly all marriage-bonds with insulated, haughty singleness? Or is it that, deceived by my apparent engagement, your heart never asked itself the worth of mine, till already all its own pulsations beat for another object? Harleigh tried to smile, tried to rally, tried to divert the question. All in vain. Elinor became but more urgent, and more disordered. "'Oh, Harleigh!' she cried. Is it too much to ask this one mark of your confidence, for a creature who has cast her whole destiny at your feet? Speak, if you would not devote me to distraction! Speak, if you would not consign me to immediate delirium! And what, cried he, trembling at her vehemence, would you have me say? That it is not Elinor whom you despise, but another whom you love. Elinor, are you mad? No, Harleigh, no, but I am wild with anguish, to dive into the full depth of my disgrace, to learn whether it were inevitable, from the very nature of things, from personal antipathy, gloss it over as you will with esteem, regard, and professions, or whether you had found that you also had a soul, before mine was laid open to you. No evasion, no delay, continued she, with augmenting impetuosity. You have promised to grant my boon. Speak, Harleigh, speak! Was it my direful fate, or your insuperable antipathy? 
'It was surely not antipathy!' cried he, in a tone the most soothing, yet with a look affrighted, and unconscious, till he had spoken, of the inference to which his words might be liable. 'I thank you!' cried she, fervently. 'Harleigh, I thank you! This, at least, is noble! This is treating me with distinction! This is honouring me with trust! It abates the irritating tinglings of mortified pride! It persuades me I am the victim of misfortune, not of contempt!' Suddenly, then, turning to Ellis, whose eyes, during the whole scene, had seemed riveted to the floor, she expressively added, "'I ask not the object!' Harleigh breathed hard, yet kept his face in an opposite direction, and endeavoured to look as if he did not understand her meaning. Ellis commanded her features to remain unmoved, but her complexion was not under the same control. Frequent blushes crossed her cheeks, which, though they died away almost as soon as they were born, vanished only to reappear, evincing all the unconsciousness that she struggled to suppress. A pause ensued, to Harleigh unspeakably painful, and to Ellis indescribably distressing, during which Elinor fell into a profound reverie, from which, after a few minutes, wildly starting, "'Harleigh!' she cried, "'is your wedding-day fixed?' "'My wedding-day?' he repeated, with a forced smile. "'Must not my wedding itself be fixed first? "'And is it not fixed? Does it depend upon Ellis?' He looked palpably disconcerted, while Ellis, hastily raising her head, exclaimed, "'Upon me, madam! No, indeed! I am completely in every way out of the question!' "'Of you,' said Elinor, with severity, "'I mean not to make any inquiry. You are an adept in the occult sciences, and such I venture not to encounter. But you, Harleigh, will you also practice disguise, and fall so in love with mystery as to lose your nobler nature, in a blind, infatuated admiration of the marvellous and obscure?' Ellis resentfully reddened, but her cheeks were pale to those of Harleigh. Neither of them, however, spoke, and Elinor continued. I cannot, Harleigh, be deceived, and I will not be trifled with, when you came over to fetch me from France, when the fatal name of sister gave me a right to interrogate you, I frankly asked the state of your heart, and you unhesitatingly told me it was wholly free. Since that period, whom have you seen, whom noticed, except Ellis? Ellis! Ellis! From the first moment that you have beheld her, she has seemed the mistress of your destiny, the arbitress of your will. My boon, then, Harleigh, my boon! without a moment's further delay, appease the raging ferment in my veins, clear away every surmise, and generously, honestly say, "'Tis Ellis, or it is another, and not Ellis, I prefer to you.' "'Eleanor, Eleanor!' cried Harleigh, in a universal tremor. "'It is I that you will make mad!' While Ellis, not daring to draw upon herself again the rebuke which might follow a single declaiming word, rose, and turning from them both, stood facing the window. "'It is surely Ellis, then, what you will not, Harleigh, avow, is precisely what you proclaim. It is surely Ellis!' Ellis opened the window, and leant out her head. Harleigh, clapping his hand upon his crimsoned forehead, walked with hasty steps round the little apartment. Losing now all self-command, and wringing her hands, in a transport of ungovernable anguish, "'Oh, Harleigh! Harleigh!' 
Eleanor cried, to what a chimera have you given your heart? To an existence unintelligible, a character unfathomable, a creature of imagination, though visible. Oh, can you believe she will ever love you as Eleanor loves? With the warmth, with the truth, with the tenderness, with the choice. Can she show herself as disinterested? Can she prove herself as devoted? She aims, madam, at no rivalry, said Ellis, gravely, and returning to her seat, while Harleigh, tortured between resentment and pity, stood still, without venturing to look up or reply. Rivalry! repeated Eleanor, with high disdain. No! Upon what species of competition could rivalry be formed, between Eleanor and a compound of cold caution and selfish prudence? Oh, Harleigh, how is it you thus can love all you were wont to scorn? Double-dealing, false appearances, and lurking disguise, without a family she dare claim, without a story she dare tell, without a name she dare avow! A deep sigh, which now burst from Ellis, terminated the conflict between indignation and compassion in Harleigh, who raised his eyes to meet those of Eleanor, with an expression of undisguised displeasure. "'You are angry,' she cried, clasping her hands with forced and terrible joy. "'You are angry, and I am thankful for the lesson. I meant not to have lingered thus. My design was to have been abrupt and noble.' Looking at him, then, with uncontrolled emotion, if ever man deserved the sacrifice of a pure heart, she continued, tis you, Harleigh, you, and mine, from the period it first became conscious of its devotion to you, has felt that it could not survive the certitude of your union with another. All else of slight, of failure, of inadequate pretensions, might be borne. For where neither party is happy, misery is not aggravated by contrast, nor mortification by comparison." but to become the object of insolent pity to the happy, to make a part of a rival's blessings, by being offered up at the shrine of her superiority. No, Harleigh, no, such abasement is not for Eleanor. And what is the charm of this wretched machine of clay, that can pay for sustaining its burden under similar disgrace? Let those who prize support it. For me, my glass is run, my cup is full, I die. Die! repeated Ellis, with a faint scream, while Harleigh looked petrified with horror. "'Yes, die,' answered Eleanor, with a smile triumphant, though ghastly. "'Or sleep, call it which you will, so animation be over, so feeling be past, so my soul no longer linger under the leaden oppression of disappointment, under sickness of all mortal existence, under incurable, universal disgust. Call it what you please, sleep, rest, or death.' Termination is all I seek. And is there, Eleanor, no other name for what follows our earthly dissolution? cried Harleigh, with a shuddering frown. What say you if we call it immortality? Will you preach to me? cried she, her eyes darting fire. Will you bid me look forward to yet another life, when this, short as it is deemed, I find insupportable? Ah, Harleigh, Harleigh, her eyes suffusing with sudden tenderness. Were I yours, I might wish indeed to be immortal. Harleigh was extremely affected. He approached her, took her hand, and soothingly said, My dear Eleanor, compose your spirits, exert your strength of mind, and suffer us to discuss these subjects at some length. No, Harleigh, I must not trust myself to your fascinations. How do I know but they might bewitch me out of my reason, and entangle me again in those antique superstitions which make misery so cowardly? 
No, Harleigh, the star of Ellis has prevailed, and I sink beneath its influence. Else, only sometimes to see you, to hear of you, to watch you, and to think of you always, I would still live, nay, feel joy in life, for still my imagination would gift you, ultimately, with sensibility to my regard. But I anticipate the union which I see to be inevitable, and I spare my senses the shock which I feel would demolish them. Harleigh, dearest Harleigh, adieu. A paleness like that of death overspread her face. "'What is it?' cried Harleigh, inexpressibly alarmed. "'What is it Elinor means?' "'To reconquer, by the courage of my death, the esteem I may leave forfeited by my jealousy, my envy, my littleness in life. You only could have corrected my errors. You, by your ascendance over my feelings, might have refined them into virtues.' Oh, Harleigh, weigh not alone my imperfections when you recollect my attachment, but remember that I have loved you so as woman never loved. Her voice now faltered, and she shook so violently that she could not support herself. She put her hand gently upon the arm of Harleigh, and, gliding nearly behind him, leant upon his shoulder. He would have spoken words of comfort, but she seemed incapable of hearing him. Farewell, she cried. Harleigh, never will I live to see Ellis yours. Farewell, a long farewell. Precipitately she then opened the chagrin case, and was drawing out its contents, when Ellis, darting forward, caught her arm, and screamed rather than articulated, Ellis will never be his! Forbear! Forbear! Ellis will never be his! The astonished Harleigh, who, hitherto, had rigorously avoided meeting the eyes of Ellis, now turned towards her, with an expression in which all that was not surprise was resentment, while Elinor, seeming suddenly suspended, faintly pronounced, "'Ellis! Deluding Ellis! What is it you say?' "'I am no deluder,' cried Ellis, yet more eagerly. "'Rely, rely upon my plighted honour. Harleigh now looked utterly confounded, but Ellis only saw, and seemed only to breathe for Elinor, who, recovering, as if by miracle, her complexion, her voice, and the brightness of her eyes, rapturously exclaimed, "'Oh, Harleigh, is there, then, sympathy in our fate? Do you, too, love in vain?' And from a change of emotion, too sudden and too mighty for the shattered state of her nerves, she sunk senseless upon the floor. The motive to the strange protestations of Ellis was now apparent. A poignard dropped from the hand of Elinor as she fell, of which, while she spoke her farewell, Ellis had caught a glance. Harleigh seemed himself to require the aid that he was called upon to bestow. He looked at Elinor with a mixture of compassion and horror, and, taking possession of the poignard, "'Unhappy Elinor!' he cried, into what a chaos of error and of crime have these fatal new systems bewildered thee! The revival of Elinor was almost immediate, and though, at first, she seemed to have lost the remembrance of what had happened, the sight of Ellis and Harleigh soon brought it back. She looked from one to the other, as if searching her destiny, and then, with quick impatience, though somewhat checked by shame, cried, "'Ellis, have you not mocked me?' Ellis, covered with blushes and confusion, addressing herself to Harleigh, said, 
Pardon, Mr. Harleigh, my seeming presumption, where no option has been offered me, and where such an option is as wide from my expectations as it would be from my desert. This terrible crisis must be my apology. A shivering, like that of an ague fit, again shook the agitated Elinor, who, ejaculating, What farce is this? Fool! Fool! Shall I thus sleepily be duped? looked keenly around for her lost weapon. Duped? No, madam, cried Ellis, in a tone of impressive veracity. If I had the honour to be better known to Miss Jodrell, one assertion I flatter myself would suffice. My word is given. It has never yet been broken. With this declaration, though softened by a sigh the most melancholy, struck cold to the heart of Harleigh, its effect upon Elinor was that of an ecstasy which seemed the offspring of frenzy. "'Do I awake, then?' she cried. "'From agony and death, agony impossible to support, death willing and welcome, to renewed life, to an interesting, however deplorable, existence? Is my fate in harmony with the fate of Harleigh? Has he, even he, given his soul, his noble soul, to one who esteems and admires him, yet who will not be his? Can Harleigh love in vain?' Tears now rolled fast and unchecked down her cheeks, while, in tones of enthusiasm, she continues, "'I hail thee once again, O life, with all thy arrows! Welcome, welcome, every evil that associates my catastrophe with that of Harleigh! Yet I blush, methinks, to live! Blush and feel little, nearly in the same proportion that I should have gloried to die!' With these words, and recoiling from a solemn, yet tender exhortation, begun by Harleigh, she abruptly quitted the little building, and, her mind not more highly wrought by self-exaltation, than her body was weakened by successive emotions, she was compelled to accept the fearfully offered assistance of Ellis, to regain, with tottering steps, the house. End of chapter 18 Recording by Roxana Nazari